You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 16 in our sacrament series and our conclusion on matrimony. Father Loop is back to look at how a change in looking at the Catholic Church led to a change in the understanding of marriage, which still today is having devastating consequences for Catholic families. How is it that efforts in the 1960s to be more open to other Christian denominations has led to an openness to cohabitation, communion for divorced and remarried couples, and a virtual blank permission check for mixed marriages? Father will take us through the history of all of this and through the intended and unintended consequences of these seismic shifts. If you like these and the other series we are doing, and want to help us continue to make them, you can help by leaving a small monthly or one-time donation on sspxpodcast.com or by subscribing to this channel on YouTube or by subscribing and leaving a rating for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And thank you for helping us with this apostolate to reach as many people as possible with the beauty and the truth of what it means to be a traditional Catholic. Now let's join Father Loop right now. Last time we spoke about the um, how the ends of marriage have been changed or the idea of the ends of marriage have been changed or at least muddled a bit in the new um, new understanding of the sacrament of matrimony. What are we looking at today broadly, Father? So what we're going to see today is that not only was marriage, in a sense, attacked on the natural level, which is really what we mean when we speak of those ends of marriage, but also over and above that in its supernatural and sacramental signification, which uh, I think will become clear as we discuss the issues today. Um, So effectively, um, at the Second Vatican Council and after, there was, we can say, something of a reinterpretation of marriage and some of the critical and vital elements of it in the light of ecumenism, in fact. And that would end up having, we can say, two major effects on the sacrament of matrimony. The first of which was a deeply changed attitude towards mixed marriages, by which I mean especially marriages between a baptized Catholic and a baptized non-Catholic, whether, let's say, a Eastern Rite schismatic, an Orthodox as we more normally speak of them, or a, a Protestant in Western Europe let's say. And to simplify there, what we'll see is that this new attitude was that uh, mixed marriages should not any longer be treated as something as positively bad, and even on occasion, under certain aspects, should be considered as positively good. So that's one thing that we'll see today. And uh, that was certainly, and that was the more obvious and an initial battle over the understanding of the sacrament of matrimony. The second thing we'll look at is more recent, and it can be expressed as the changed attitude that we see, especially under Pope Francis, um, the changed attitude towards the divorced and remarried. Now, what uh, Pope Francis 
uh, we may say gave encouragement to, especially with someone like Cardinal Casper uh, at the Synod on the Family that was held in 2014, uh, I don't think could reasonably be said to have been anticipated uh, at the Council, nor certainly intended by the Liberal Fathers there, such as the one we spent a great deal of time looking at last uh, episode with uh, Leo Cardinal Swenens, or by Paul VI. But what we'll see, if briefly, is that the principles that those men laid out, especially with respect to ecumenism, served as the foundation for the words and actions of Cardinal Casper and the other uh, fathers at the Synod on the family in their, let's say, reinterpretation of marriage and how to deal with uh, people in a situation where they have been divorced and remarried, and especially with respect to receiving Holy Communion. And what we'll see is that that attitude um, towards marriage depended essentially on the notion that was laid out at the council that the true church subsists in the Catholic church. In other words, no longer is the same thing as the Catholic church, but subsists in it. And that elements of sanctification can be found in other as they would put it, ecclesial communions. Um, and so just as the Roman Catholic Church is no longer the unique bride of Christ, uh, as taught by Vatican II, and the Spirit of Christ does not refuse to make use of other ecclesial communions, uh, as they now say churches, uh, to save souls, so too we'll see that um, marriage is not going to be something simply limited to uh, sacramental marriage. So true marriage subsists in Catholic marriage, but elements of sanctification can exist in other unions. Okay, and, we'll, right. and as I said, we'll go through that, and it's fairly explicit, in fact. So with that, what so, I propose... Go ahead. No, actually, go ahead. I was, I was, I was just going to recap, but it sounds like you were, so go ahead. Well, what I was going to propose that we do is to turn to the question of mixed marriages in themselves, firstly. Okay. Um, so, again, and I think we touched on this a little bit last time, but it might be helpful just to kind of recall to mind how the church looked at this question of mixed marriages uh, traditionally. And just as a reminder, what we're looking at is the question of a marriage of a baptized Catholic with a baptized non-Catholic, whether Protestant, whether Orthodox, or whatever. Um, you know, in any of those cases, the church had a similar approach. Okay. And to best see that, we can look once more at the canon law that uh, was published in 1917. Uh, the first set of them simply lay out the church's attitude and judgment on them. And uh, to begin with, you have Canon uh, 1060, where we see that the church most severely and everywhere prohibits uh, uh, the faithful lest they enter into a matrimony, uh, which would be between two baptized persons of whom one is Catholic, the other of a heretical sect or a schismatic sect. And in those occasions where there is a danger to the perversion of the faith, either of the Catholic spouse or the children, this kind of marriage is forbidden by the divine law itself. And so that's the basic outlook of the church. So she forbids it, firstly. 
as something evil. And in those cases where we can have a reasonable certainty that the um, the Catholic spouse is going to follow the non-Catholic in their religious uh, beliefs, whatever they may prove to be, then, as the Church puts it, the divine law forbids it. You know, so God Himself makes it uh, evident that that cannot occur. Okay. But she does go on, obviously, recognizing, okay, look, there's sometimes people get themselves in those situations, and they fall in love with somebody, and unfortunately cannot think clearly at that point, potentially. Or, well, there might be a very valid hope that the, the non-Catholic will, in fact, convert. Now, in those cases, let's say where somebody is uh, proposing to get married to a non-Catholic, a baptized person, uh, the church in the next canon, 1061, says that she will not dispense from this impediment unless there are just and grave causes to allow it. Secondly, that the non-Catholic spouse will give a, we may say, um, an assurance that they will um, remove any kind of danger of perversion for the Catholic spouse, and both spouses must make an assurance or give an assurance that all the children will be raised and well baptized and then raised and educated as Catholics. And then finally, it says that, uh, the, the canon law says that there must be a moral certitude that this assurance will be fulfilled. And lastly, uh, they require that this be given in writing by both. You know, so, for example, if let's say the you know, society, if we end up being in a position where we have to marry someone in these circumstances or we judge that there are those grave and just causes, you know, we make each sign a promise that they will raise the uh, children Catholic, let's say. Um, and again, we have to have that moral certainty. We have to judge, okay, this, this man or this woman who's not Catholic seems serious about respecting what the church is demanding of them. The, the second of course, part the of that, the mm -hmm. second part of that provision, Father, excuse me, it, it makes sense to me the where both have to agree that the children will be baptized and educated in the Catholic faith. Uh, what does that first part mean? Um, where there's a, a the, there wouldn't be a danger of perversion of the faith. Does that mean that the the non-Catholic would go ahead finish your question? That the non-Catholic would be uh, trying to convince the Catholic spouse to stop going to mass or something like that precisely or okay. let's say trying to convince them to become i don't know protestant become methodist or or if they're um you know an orthodox saying okay no look you know you really understand that the roman catholic church is you know this terrible institution you know you should really become right. orthodox or whatever okay um so that's the kind of thing that's meant by that language Okay, thank you. Um, and again, so so the non-Catholic spouse has to do basically two things there in the canon law. They're required to promise they won't try to, you know, we can use the term convert, or as the canon law says, to pervert uh, the faith of the Catholic spouse. And secondly, they have to promise that I will positively uh, cooperate in having the children raised Catholic. Okay. You know? And we'll see, well, anyways, we'll come back to that. 
Now the next canon, 1062, is interesting because there the law of the church states that in this case, a Catholic spouse must work for the conversion of the non-Catholic spouse. So in other words, what we were just saying that the church says you cannot do that to the non-Catholic spouse, she also tells the Catholic spouse you must do that for your non-Catholic spouse. You know, obviously, discreetly, you know, that's all and governed by prudence, but that must be at the mind of the Catholic spouse that I have to try to work to bring this person into the faith. Now, um, in Canon 1063, it's stated that even if the church has a, given this dispensation concerning the mixed religions, the spouses are not able, whether before or after the marriage gone into before the ministers of the church, also to go, whether by themselves or through a representative, to a non-Catholic minister in order to renew, or to, I'm sorry, whether to give or to renew their matrimonial consent. So in other words, um, this is basically for the non-Catholic party. It's like, no, you cannot get your marriage uh, acknowledged in a religious cer ceremony before your minister. And the church is pretty demanding there. It's like, you will not do that. Okay. And in fact, going so far as if the parish priest has a suspicion that that may happen, or perhaps already has, they are forbidden, on, uh, except for the most, most grave causes, and, in order, and with all possible danger of scandal being removed, to witness the marriage. You know, which is a, a problem for the Catholic or Catholic part because that would mean that their marriage is invalid. Mm -hmm. And yes, there there is a a provision in that law that states that you know if they go bef if the let's say the law of the country requires a civil uh, recognition of the marriage, the church doesn't forbid the couple to go before a non-Catholic minister offering operating as a uh, Minister of the of the state, you know, for a civil okay. effect. But uh, even so, that's it's kind of um, let's say here in the United States, it would never work because, well, in most of the states, um, whoever does the marriage is delegated by the state to be the the witness of the state. So right. you wouldn't even have a need for that here, let's say. And then uh, finally. The last, the series of canons, Canon 1064, and this is one we quoted before. We see that the church uh, obliges local bishops um, and other pastors of souls in the first place, and again, this is a word we focused on last time, obsteriant, to terrify the faithful away from these kinds of mixed marriages. Like they're, they're bad. And, you know, it's only in, the, in order to avoid a greater evil, in fact, that often the church would grant that kind of dispensation. Um, and then it goes on. So, as we mentioned before, and this is under the question of the sacrament, uh, traditionally speaking, um, a mixed marriage, you cannot have that in connection with the Mass because it fails precisely in the heart of what the sacrament is, which is to symbolize or to incarnate, in a way, the union between Christ and his church, which is affected at the Mass. And because it fails so significantly in that manner, it, it's not fitting, not proper, for it to be associated with the Mass 
even if the church has judged that, okay, look, we can give a dispensation and permit you to be validly married. And that'll be important. And then the last canons deal with punishments for those who don't follow the law of the church. So you firstly have Canon 2319, which declares that um, they are subject uh, to an excommunication of late sententiae reserved to the uh, ordinary who go into a marriage before a non-Catholic minister. So in other words, they have their consent witnessed there, and they're going to be excommunicated. I mean, it's pretty strong. You are no longer part of the church. Furthermore, if they go into the marriage uh, with an either an explicit or an implicit agreement that either all or some of the children will be educated outside the Catholic Church, you know, that's something like that has happened. You know, on occasion, you know, I've heard tales of, uh, let's say, a um, non-Catholic getting married to a Catholic and them agreeing that all the, the boys would follow the dad, whatever religion mm-hmm. he had, and then all the girls follow mom. You know, it's so, okay, we'll make kind of an agreement, you know, kind of a compromise to save the peace. And the church makes it very clear that if you do that, if you make that agreement and that's understood, then you're subject to an excommunication. Same thing with the question of uh, giving the children to be baptized by non-Catholic ministers or who in any way hand their children over to be educated in a non-Catholic religion. They're excommunicated. You know, it simply cannot happen. And then finally, Canon 2375, which comments that um, Catholics who go into a mixed marriage, even if it's invalid, okay, without the dispensation of the church, by that very fact are excluded from all legitimate ecclesiastical acts and from all sacramentals until they obtain the dispensation from the ordinary. So again, it's not as harsh as the first one, as Canon 2319, but it's still making it very clear this is unacceptable. And you cannot make use of the sacramentals um, until the time that you actually approach the local ordinary. So clearly, I mean, the church is pretty, we can say strict, pretty uh, clear and demanding. But of course, the reason being is um, that safeguard of the faith. You know, the, the whole question being of a marriage is to bring children into the world, that's a primary purpose, and to educate them. And not just, let's say, to give them a, a natural and intelligent culture, but rather to imp- uh, impress upon them the truths which our Lord Jesus Christ has handed over to us and to impart to them a love of his bride, the church, both of which are gravely, gravely threatened when we deal with this uh, mixed marriage. Um, And so from her point of view, it's it's an extremely um, dangerous situation, to put it at the least. And over and above that, um, something which fails, you may say, even to... Um, really and deeply symbolize what the sacrament is meant to be. It's that union of Christ and the church. So does that make sense so far? It does. And it's, um, it's striking how it is so strict. This is not a 
hey, well, you can get married, but you just have to follow these rules. It is, it is forbidden. Mm-hmm. Here are some scenarios where it could happen, but still it's forbidden. Like there has to be very, very good reasons for it. It's, um, mm-hmm. there's a difference between those two mindsets. Correct. Oh yeah, for sure. I know, you know, one of the priests I know has to, unfortunately, deal with a number of mixed marriages, you know, and sometimes where it's okay, fine. We're in a position where reasonably we have to grant that permission. But his comment is that oftentimes the, the faithful will come to him. It's like, you know, this is great, right? You know, this is perfectly okay. Okay. And, and, um, and they get a little upset when he's like, no, we have to wait. We have to look into a few things here. You know, right. um, and, and his comment is that they, they don't unfortunately understand. And sometimes it's just, uh, there's a variety of reasons for that, but they just don't understand. It's um, something the church is conceding to them to avoid greater evils. It's not something right. they have a right to. Right. Um, okay. So uh, now when we come to look at the question of what happened in Vatican II and after, um, with re- respect to this question of the mixed marriages, uh, what we're going to see is that there were several goals in guiding uh, a number of the liberals who wanted to reform the, those very laws and spirit the church. Uh, we may say the first of the goals was, let's say, to f- be able to foster ecumenical dialogue by undoing the impediments to, to, to marriage, which were displeasing to non-Catholics. You know, and you might say not unsurprisingly, the average non-Catholic is not going to understand the demands of the church there. You know, right. It's like, wait, what? You know, you're telling me that I absolutely cannot raise my children, you know, according to what I believe is true. How dare you? And so um, from a point of number, from the perspective of a number of these uh, bishops and cardinals, for example, Cardinal Frings from Cologne, uh, they thought that by eliminating these impediments and saying, okay, look, they're no longer going to be in place, it would signify to, as they put it, our separated brethren, that there's been a renewal of attitudes and a greater respect now for them. So, uh, for example, uh, Cardinal Frings advocated uh, dropping the interdiction to have a marriage witness before a non-Catholic minister. And he did so in an intervention on the 28th of November in 1964, um, before the whole body of the bishops gathered, insisting that the church suppress those ecclesiastical sanctions, which exist actually um, with respect particularly for that uh, recourse to a non-Catholic minister for as a witness. You know, in other words, we want to show respect to you. And um, we're going to take this, we're going to take the first step towards you. So as we be able to have that greater uh, dialogue. Together with that, there was a movement to get rid of the need to obtain a promise from the non-Catholic party to raise the children in the faith. As well as getting rid of the obligation of the Catholic party to work for the conversion of the non-Catholic. You know, again, those were all obligations. In other words, we're not going to do the marriage if this doesn't happen. And so Cardinal Frings, uh, amongst others, was advocating, okay, no, let's actually eliminate that. But we can even go a little bit further. So it's not merely a matter of removing obstacles for that 
uh, good spirit and good understanding. Indeed, um, from the point of view of not a few of uh, these church fathers then and now, um, this question of mixed marriages could even serve as a model for ecumenical dialogue and even the kind of unity that might exist between these various different, as they say, churches, uh, each of which could remain true to its own traditions and not abandon them. And perhaps to give a little bit of light on that, I'd like to quote a, a comment uh, that was made by Pope Benedict XVI in, uh, let's say, in one of the World Youth Days that took place, in fact, very early in his pontificate in 2005. So it had already been scheduled before uh, His Holiness John Paul II had passed away, and Pope Benedict XVI just followed through on it and went there. And while he was there, he you know, met with a variety of different groups, and one of which was representatives of various different um, German Protestants, a lot of German Lutherans and what have you. And he commented and uh, discussed a little bit about this question of ecumenism, what its goals are and what its meaning is as far as he understood it. And in the course of those remarks, he says, on the other hand, this unity between the different um, uh, Christian groups does not mean what could be called the ecumenism of return. That is, to deny and to reject one's own faith history. And I'll uh, uh, intervene there and say that what that effectively means is he's saying, we don't want you to convert. We don't want you to become Catholic. Absolutely not, to return to his comments. It does not mean uniformity in all expressions of theology and spirituality, in liturgical forms, and in discipline. I mean, think about that. We don't, we're not looking for a uniformity in expressions of theology and spirituality. So, you know, we say that our Lord is body, blood, soul, and divinity present in the Holy Eucharist, and that there is that substantial change to the words of consecration. But you Lutherans, you don't. You, you deny that. And much more so for his, you know, Protestants such as Baptists and what have you. But that's fine. We don't want you to reject that. We want you to maintain that uh, diversity, or as he puts it, unity and multiplicity, and multiplicity in unity. In my homily for the Solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul on 29th of June last, in 2005, I insisted that full unity and true Catholicity in the original sense of the word go together. As a necessary conclusion, or I apologize, as a necessary condition for the achievement of this coexistence, the commitment to unity must be constantly purified and renewed, must constantly grow and mature. To this end, dialogue has its own contribution to make. More than an exchange of thoughts, an academic exercise, it is an exchange of gifts, in which the churches and the ecclesial communities can make available their own riches. <laughs> and he there uh, refers back to Lumen Gentium and Unitatis Red Integratio, both documents of Vatican II. And as I was, I was talking about this with one of my friends, a layman. And he's like, oh, yes, oh, the infinite riches of heresy that we, the Holy Mother of the Church needs to be enriched by. But again, that's what he means. 
And we have to understand, when he, when he speaks to that question of a unity of return at the very beginning of that passage, he's making reference to a phrase in Pope Pius XI's uh, document, Mortalium Animos, which talks about ecumenism, uh, which was written in the early, late 1920s, in which he says, yeah, there is a true ecumenism, it's ecumenism return. Right. Where we want all these souls who are unfortunately, in one way or another, kept out of the true church to be able to convert and to have access to the truth and to everything that flows from the truth, especially, obviously, the true liturgy and the sacraments. And we can kind of get a little bit of a, a concrete manifestation of what, say, Pope Benedict XVI, for example, had in mind by speaking of, you know, not asking um, these various different um, Protestant groups to forsake their, as he puts it, their own faith history in the doctrine Anglicanorum, sorry, it's pronouncing that, Chetibus, where he basically said, yeah, you know, for any Anglicans or Episcopalians who wish to become Catholic, what we'll be willing to do is receive you and let you keep your liturgy and everything that goes with it. That's your faith history. Of course, the only problem with that is that for the Episcopalians, the Anglicans, their liturgy, if we use that term, it's not really correct, is precisely devised and written as a rejection of the Catholic liturgy. You know, written by Thomas Cran Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, specifically so as to be ambiguous and to uh, introduce the possibility of you know, not having that understanding of transubstantiation, which was certainly his vision. Um, yes, I mean, so that's, that's just a, an incarnation, we may say, of that attitude. And in that light, it certainly makes sense that a mixed marriage might be a perfect representation of that right. in the sense of you have these two people, each of whom are invited now to be faithful to their faith history, and to use that term, and to thus manifest that unity and multiplicity. You know, they have that, they're both working towards the same ends, even though one is Catholic, the other is, I don't know, Baptist. Right. Just to, to choose a random one. And again, this, this was, in fact, the mindset. So in a document, a commentary given by the Belgian Episcopate, again, that's uh, the Episcopate of which Leo Cardinal Swenens is the most dynamic member at the time. And in this commentary given in 1970 on a proprio that we'll see in a few moments by Paul VI, we read that... Um, so this development in ecumenism exercised its influence on the attitude of the Roman Church with respect to mar mixed marriages. Consequently, the Church has applied herself to study under this new angle the principles relative to the pastoral care of mar mixed marriages, especially as a result of the particular signification which a mixed home, in other words, a, a Catholic spouse, non-Catholic spouse, is able to have for the ecumenical work. The partners of such a union are not only called 
who assume or take to themselves personally the suffering of the disunion amongst the churches, but the small little church which their home constitutes is something in which they are able to be a prefiguration of the Christian unity which is to come. It's remarkable, you know. Again, you know, from a traditional point of view of the church, this is a terrible thing. But now, after Vatican II and with this new vision of ecumenism, all of a sudden, yes, it can involve suffering when they're not agreed on these various questions, but, but, they can also be the light which guides us towards how, in fact, we may attain a new unity. And again, like Benedict XVI says, a unity that is not based on this idea of conversion to the truth. And maybe just one other quote. This one coming uh, again. This is an intervention that was made at the council uh, when this was this question was debated briefly uh, in November of 1964. Um, so, in the midst of an important intervention uh, with respect to this question, uh, Monsignor Heenan, speaking in the name of all the hierarchy of England, as well as of the of bishops from num numerous other countries approved this idea and added, I would even go so far as to say our text ought to be truly ecumenical and it ought to say something about the fashion in which a mixed marriage ought to be celebrated in which the non-Catholic spouse is an active member of an other religious community. Now I think, and here I speak in my own name, that after the marriage celebrated in the Catholic Church, there is no reason why the two spouses, if they so desire, do not go together to the church of the non-Catholic spouse to pray there and to receive there a blessing. Mm. So again, he made it very clear, okay, look, I'm speaking at this point in my own name, but at the same time, it's really not outside of the Spirit. Uh, especially as we'll see in a few moments, you know, which is, okay, look, this non-Catholic person, he's a practicing member. He has this very strongly held view. And it only makes sense that we respect, in a sense, his deeply held religious convictions, which will push him towards getting his marriage blessed by his own religious uh, minister, let's say. So although, again, he was maybe being a little bit more bold in his application of the principle, it's still the same principle in the end. And the last thing I'll mention here as far as the spirit is concerned, or for this vision of um, these mixed marriages somehow being a positive thing, it comes from the final relatio from the Synod on the Family. Again, that was held in October of 2014. And here is from, taken from its seventh paragraph. And there the bishops stated, in countries where Catholicism is the minority, many mixed and interreligious marriages take place, all with their inherent difficulties in terms of jurisprudence, baptism, the upbringing of children, and the mutual respect for each other's religious freedom, not to mention the danger of relativism or indifference. At the same time, 
Such marriages can exhibit great potential in favoring the spirit of ecumenism and interreligious dialogue and a harmonious living of diverse religions in the same place. Now, that document was much more famous for the question of divorced or remarried uh, couples and whether or not they could go to communion. But here we see once more that idea that, in fact, mixed marriages, they have difficulties, fine, but they're all on the human level. And not only that, but they invite each other to have a mutual respect for each other's religious freedom. Now, if you think about that, that's directly against Canon 1062 in the Old Code, where the Catholic spouse was obligated to work for the conversion of the non-Catholic spouse. From this point of view, that's obviously not respecting their religious freedom, so to speak. You know, because it's not merely a matter of not you know, hindering them, but positively uh, respecting their views, so to speak. Um, and again, it's also indicating that our goal is precisely not to bring people back into the Catholic Church, but in fact to be able to live in harmony, each one following whatever their convictions may happen to be. Wow. And that's, and that's most perfectly exemplified in this most intimate of unions. Okay. So now it might be good to look at a few of the actual decisions that follow the council. So I'm mean, quoting Cardinal Heaton, I mentioned uh, as an aside as well, that um, they debated it for a time at the council, but the council fathers voted to defer the question of how to handle mixed marriages to um, a commission uh, that would be overseen by the Pope and also by Cardinal Ottaviani. And... Um, that would provide some uh, decisions in the next few years. But even before getting to that, there was a decision with respect to the Oriental churches, by which I mean the Orthodox, uh, those Oriental churches which are not in communion with Rome. So maybe just as a reminder for any of our listeners who um, might not be familiar with that, so you have uh, Oriental rites, um, for example, Coptic, Maronite, um, uh, let's say various of the Greek rites, and some of the some people who follow those rites are in union with Rome, and some are not. Mm-hmm. Those who are are typically referred to as units. Um, in other words, they are submitted to the Holy Father, and there's in fact has been a congregation in Rome, the Congregation of Oriental, Oriental Churches, which deals with them. And then, of course, you have those who are not, and they're more broadly speaking uh, referred to as the Orthodox, although this, that gives the impression that you have a unified block, and that's anything but the case. Uh, you have basically many, many different, uh, let's say, structures, not all of which recognize each other's uh, validity or what have you. So at the council itself, there was taken a decision which was actually uh, included in the decree on uh, Oriental Catholic churches, which indicated that, or let me perhaps just read a quote from, a, from an author. More important was the decision of the commission, conciliar commission for the Oriental churches, which, uh, taking into account numerous remarks by Council Fathers, proposed that for marriages between Catholics and non-Catholic Orientals, 
the form no longer oblige for validity, even if it would still oblige for laicity. And that was actually included in the decree for the Oriental Catholic Churches on the 21st November of 1964. And what that means is that um, by, by form, it means being married before a Catholic minister. And so, uh, in other words, if someone a Catholic were to get married to, let's say, a Greek Orthodox, and do so, let's say before the Greek Orthodox minister and not before the Catholic minister, the marriage would be illicit, not lawful, but it would be valid, whereas previously it had been invalid. Okay. So again, it's a step in that direction. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. Now going a little bit further, um, here we're going to see the, the recommendations, the concrete recommendations that are made to lighten the restrictions dealing with mixed marriages. So firstly, the Conciliar Commission on the Discipline of the Sacraments proposed in 1964 the following wish, that the canon law be revised in the spirit of the decree on ecumenism and on the Declaration on Religious Liberty. So think about the inspiration there. We want to revise the canon law in light of ecumenism and religious liberty, which we also heard, and just maybe to tie it together, in that language of the final relatio of the Synod on the Family. In other words, to respect each other's religious freedom. So the party, the Catholic party, ought to promise that he or she will have care as much as he is able to have baptized and raised as Catholic all of the children. Again, and we're gonna, I'm going to draw attention to that in a moment, but just continue here for the moment. The non-Catholic party ought to be duly averted of this engagement, as well as the ends and properties which are essential to marriage. These marriages ought to be celebrated before the Catholic priest, but the bishop ought to be able to dispense from this for grave reasons. Mm. Furthermore, the celebration of the marriage ought normally to take place in the course of the Mass. And finally, at least in this uh, passage, those who marry ought before a non-Catholic minister will no longer be excommunicated. Okay, so there's another of wishes that are being expressed there, all of which go in the same direction, which is to minimize the seriousness of entering a mixed marriage. And in fact, many of those recommendations will find their way into canon law. And obviously, because they're minimizing the seriousness in every respect, it's based on the presupposition that there is not, in fact, a grave danger to the faith of the, non of the Catholic party, and that it's, in fact, not a particularly serious matter in itself at all. You know, the, the, the safeguarding the faith. Again, there's a couple of aspects of that. So they, they recommend that the Catholic party only promise to do what they can, 
to baptize their children Catholic and to raise them Catholic. And remember, previously in the canon law, they were obliged to promise to do so. It's not just they'll do what they can, they must. And if there is a reason to believe that they would not or could not, then the church would not witness the marriage. Furthermore, this the recommendation that's given here uh, says nothing about a promise made by the non-Catholic party either not to, um, let's say, try to, uh, to use the term convert the Catholic spouse or, of course, and more importantly, uh, to raise the children Catholic. They're just told, okay, the Catholic has been asked to promise this. Like I said, there was debated for a while, but the, the Council Fathers voted to leave this um, to the defer to a matter set up or to a commission set up by the Holy Father. That's going to lead to a decree after the Council, the 18th of March, 1966, called Matrimonii Sacramentum. And before reading a passage or two from that, um, I'll just read this remark uh, that Cardinal Bea who perhaps is most famous uh, for his work on the decree on religious liberty. You know, he was one who basically faced off with Cardinal Ottaviani. I think we talked about that long ago in the uh, episode dealing with the preparation for the council right. uh, on the question of religious liberty. Um, so anyways, Cardinal Bea emphasized with a great precision the principles acquired in this document saying that that which is truly new in this declaration, and which is, I like this phrase, uh, which is rich for the future, <laughs> is above all the spirit which inspires it. I like that. Rich for the future means, okay, all right, we didn't get everything we wanted, but we're moving in the right direction. This spirit is effectively decisive, even if it has not yet penetrated in all the juridical prescriptions, in other words, the, the actual laws, which can be explained by the provisional character of this document. I mean, it's, it's great. It's very open about this. It's like, yeah, we didn't get everything we want, but this is a provisional document. We're, we're going to push, and when things get more settled, we'll come out on top. Right. Okay. So this document in 1966 um, is published um, under the under the uh, aegis of Cardinal Ottaviani, but it does attenuate, it does lessen the the rigors of the legislation and vigor for mixed marriages. With a as an experimental thing to see, okay, if this works, then maybe we'll actually include it in canon law. And I just wanted to touch on one or two things that were um, done in this document. Because there'll be a second one which goes even further. Okay. So, in this document, it stated that, uh, firstly, the need to safeguard the faith of the Catholic partner must be constantly in mind, and the children's education in the Catholic faith must be ensured. So there is close. So the Catholic faith of the children must be ensured. Um, and it's, it's also kept in mind that there, there is a need to safeguard the faith. Okay. And then the second uh, line here, 
So the Catholic partner's local ordinary or parish priest must be careful to impress on him or her seriously the obligation of ensuring the baptism and education of the Catholic religion of the children. The Catholic party will make an express promise that he or she will fulfill the obligation. So that's actually pretty close. They must mm -hmm. promise to do this. Now, where it's a little bit of a step back is the next part. So the non-Catholic party should, with due delicacy, but clearly, be informed of the Catholic teaching on the dignity of marriage, and especially with regard to its principal characteristics, unity and indissolubility. The non-Catholic party should also be informed of the grave obligation on the Catholic party to safeguard, preserve, and profess his or her faith, and to baptize and educate in it such children as may be born. In order to ensure the fulfillment of this obligation, the non-Catholic party is to be invited to promise, sincerely and openly, that at the very least he or she will not impede it. So there we already have a big difference. Mm -hmm. so remember, in the old canon law, they must give this promise, you know, and they must do so ordinarily in writing. So there's, I write and I promise that I will have the children raised Catholic. Here is just they're invited. If you'd like, you know, if you're, if you, we'd be very appreciative if you'd be so kind as to, you know, promise you'll, you'll not get in the way. And it even goes further. If, however, the non-Catholic party feels that such a promise would go against his or her conscience, the ordinary should refer the matter to the Holy See with all the details. Okay. Now, and it does say ordinarily these promises should be given in writing. However, it is for the ordinary to decide whether as a general rule or in individual instances the promise should be made in writing or not by the Catholic party, the non-Catholic party, or both. It is also for the ordinary to decide how they're to be inserted in the marriage documents. So again, it's, let's say, there's still a lot that reflects the traditional law here. Again, that's probably due in large measure to Cardinal uh, Ottaviani. But at the same time, we can see that movement that Cardinal Bay is talking about. It's like, well, we're not going to oblige the non-Catholic party to promises, because that might go against his conscience. We'll invite him, but we won't insist on it. And furthermore, if he or she is so strongly attached to this, it's not a matter that now the marriage cannot take place, because that, and remember, so what they're saying now, this will be referred to the Holy See. In previous times, that would have been against the divine law, because it's a, obviously a profound danger to the faith of any possible children that may be born, and as well as the spouse, uh, him or herself. You know, so it's a huge change, a shift of direction. It's very, it's in a way, it's a, it's, uh, in some senses, it's small. It doesn't affect everything because there are certain things that the Catholic party still has to promise to do it. But at the same time, they're not insisting in the same uh, solemnity and certainty on the non-Catholics part being a part of that. And even opening the door for them being able to insist, no, I'm not going to do that. I will not do that. I will not promise that. Okay. All right. Now, it might also be good to then turn to a, a second document. So that was published in 1966. Four years later, there is um, sorry a second document published now by as a moto proprio by Paul VI. 
Okay, this is called uh, Matrimonia Mixta, which is published on January 7th, 1970. So it begins with a fairly uh, long introduction uh, indicating the changes of the times to some extent, um, as well as the new spirit in the church. And then the Pope gives a few practical directives. So in the first place, he states that a marriage between two baptized persons of whom one is a Catholic while the other is a non-Catholic may not licitly be contracted without the previous dispensation of the local ordinary, since such a marriage is by its nature an obstacle to the full spiritual communion of the married parties. So it's still not encouraged, simply. But the reason given is not any longer this question of the primacy of the faith and the need to protect it, but because the two people, they won't have the ability to be, you know, united in heart. You know, it's, a, it's more personless. Then he says, so in the fourth part of these practical things, he says that to obtain from the local ordinary dispensation from an impediment to a mixed marriage, the Catholic party shall declare that he is ready to remove dangers of falling away from the faith. He is also gravely bound to make a sincere promise to do all in his power to have the children baptized and brought up in the Catholic Church. That small phrase is huge because no longer yes. is it this is what will happen, but now it's simply I'll do what I can. Right. You know. It's, it's kind of the equivalent of a of a of a kid saying when a parent says, "Here, do this," and the kid says, "I'll try." No, no, no. Yeah, exactly. No. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Basically, you know, that's precisely what's at this point being asked of the Catholic part. I'll try. Yeah. Okay. And then it goes on. At an opportune time, the non-Catholic party must be informed of these promises which the Catholic party has to make, so that it is clear that he is cognizant of the promise and obligation on the part of the Catholic. At this point, he's not even invited to make a promise not to hinder that. He's just it's like, all we're going to say is, we, we ask in the, your future wife or husband to make a promise that they're going to do whatever they can, they'll try to raise their children Catholic. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the language of inviting them even to make a promise to not hinder that is gone. So it's a further step in that direction. Um, there's a few other aspects of it. But um, perhaps most importantly is this. And this is something that was not in the 1966 document. So, with regard to the liturgical form of the celebration of a mixed marriage, if it is to be taken from the Roman ritual, use must be made of the ceremonies and the rite of celebration of marriage promulgated by our authority, whether it is a question of a marriage between a Catholic and a baptized non-Catholic, or of a marriage between a Catholic and an unbaptized person. If, however, the circumstances justify it, a marriage between a Catholic and a baptized non-Catholic can be celebrated, subject to the local ordinary's consent, according to the rites for the celebration of marriage within Mass, while respecting the prescription of general law with regard to Eucharistic communion. So what he's saying now is, okay, look, normally the norm is that you'll have a special rite for a mixed marriage, but... I give the bishops complete and utter freedom to have it done in marriage and in, in the course of the Mass, which again was the thing that was strictly forbidden in the traditional canon law. 
So it's a huge change again because we're talking about this unity that's no longer um, there's a new kind of unity basically, and it's fine right. that you have it being celebrated in mass, and it kind of brings back to to mind this is this document is published the same year that the Novus Ordo was meant to become obligatory in Advent, and it's interesting perhaps in that context to remember. Uh, some of the comments of various Protestants when it was promulgated, you know, such as Brother, uh, I believe, Roger uh, of Taizim, who said, yeah, now at this point with a Novus Ordo Mass, I can celebrate Mass according to the Catholic rites with no problems of conscience. Right. You know, it's, it's a new kind of union. It does still forbid uh, celebration of marriage before a Catholic, uh, non-Catholic minister. Okay. And it forbids it from being done either together or at other times. But, yes, it's less strict. And then finally, in this document, uh, he states that the penalties decreed by Canon 2319 of the Code of Canon Law are all abrogated. Meaning that no longer will somebody be excommunicated if they go have their marriage, let's say, witnessed by a non-Catholic minister, if they give over their children to be raised by um, in a Protestant religion or anything along those lines. So while he says, okay, you can't do that stuff still, he removes all penalties associated with it. And as a result, you know, obviously it's not very serious. And we can see that reflected in the new code of canon law. So, uh, perhaps just to, uh, to begin. So in canon 1125, we read that the local ordinary can grant a permission of this kind, in the words for a mixed marriage, if there is a just and reasonable cause. It is not to grant it unless the following conditions have been fulfilled. Firstly, the Catholic party has declared that he or she is prepared to remove dangers of defecting from the faith and is to make a sincere promise to do all in his or her power so that all offspring are baptized and brought up in the Catholic Church. Which is, again, following that document in 1970. And once more, is simply limiting it to doing what's in their power. And if they can't, well, it's not the end of the world, clearly. And secondly, in that same canon, 1125, the other party is to be informed at an appropriate time about the promises which the Catholic party is to make in such a way that it is certain that he or she is truly aware of the promise and obligation of the Catholic party. So again, they're not being demanded to promise to make sure that the children are raised Catholic. They just have to know. And wow. as a result, one can, one, I mean, basically there's no protection. Archbishop Lefebvre was deeply scandalized by this legislation and reason, rightfully so, because obviously it implies that there, you know, the Catholic faith is not the true faith. That, you know, without which, as St. Paul says, it's impossible to please God. You know, if it's just a matter, okay, look, I'll do what I can, and the other partner is ready and doesn't have to make any kind of promise not to try to raise his children or her children as Protestants of one kind or another, then what does it matter? 
And then finally, uh, as we saw with that motu proprio of Pope uh, Paul VI, um, all the penalties associated with a mixed marriage without the blessing of the church or raising children non-Catholic are gone. There is no equivalent to Canon 2319 or 2375 in the new code. So again, which is a grave lacuna. Yeah. So, so that's in a way the first of these effects, this, this question of um, this loss of sense of the faith and of what the sacrament truly is and its importance and why Catholics should never be encouraged or, let's say, um, allowed to enter these marriages without warning. You know, it's not a good idea. Well, but it, it totally follows um, the, the logic so to speak, the the consistency of Vatican II plays out here in regards to, mm-hmm. you know, the mass, removing anything that could be a stumbling block for, you know, our separated brethren, it Correct. follows here. They're, they're, they're taking that same logic and applying it here to marriage as well. Exactly. And not only that, but also the question of religious liberty. I mean, that's that plays a big deal in here because for the, for the new teaching in Vatican II and Dignitatis Humanae, every human being has a natural right, as they say, to not only live, but also to um, or have their own beliefs, but also live them integrally, you know, in the public sphere. And not only that, not only that, Dignitatis Humanae also makes goes so far as to say that everyone has a right, every relig- people of a different religions have a right to make known their um, beliefs and to try to encourage other people to uh, both respect and maybe even follow them, mm-hmm. which in this context would make sense that they no longer require, oblige the non-Catholic party uh, to make sure that the children grow up as Catholics. Because if religious liberty, truly understood in the light of Dignitanis Humani, would mean that they should have a right to present their religion to their children mm-hmm. and encourage their children to become, to follow in their footsteps. It only makes sense. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's, it's, uh, it's, we see that in the traditional sense, that's against the divine law itself. Right. Uh, at least when one's married to a Catholic. Now, as I said, there's a second fruit of this mindset of ecumenism, religious liberty, that I I think can reasonably said was not foreseen by people like uh, Cardinal Frings, by Cardinal Swenens, by Cardinal Bea, uh, who have you, but which in fact is founded on the very principles that they laid forth and defended. Um, and, you know, this turns to this question of the divorced and remarried and the famous uh, document published by Pope Francis and Maurice Letizia. And a lot of conservatives were justly up in arms against many of the you know, rather shocking statements that are contained in, in that document, as well as uh, the various documents uh, published by the Synod of Bishops itself. You know, like this is a terrible uproar. And I think I'm sure you remember that. And mm-hmm. still something that a lot of people are fairly upset by, and justly so. But the difficulty is the principles upon which those statements about marriage are based have their foundation in the Second Vatican Council, especially uh, in the new teaching on religious ecumenism, which in many of these conservatives' cases, they've already accepted right. the principle. 
So for example, uh, Father John Berg, at the time the Superior General of the Fraternity, in an interview that he gave on the Remnant on the 5th of July 2007, was asked, you know, is it a mission of the Fraternity of St. Peter or a specific fraternity theologian priests to attempt to show the, quote, hermeneutic of continuity, uh, again, that's an idea of Pope Benedict XVI, with certain difficult passages of the Second Vatican Council in the light of tradition, for instance, religious liberty, ecumenism, collegiality, and interreligious dialogue. And he answered, this is a mission that was given to the fraternity from the protocol at its very foundation. Now again, that hermeneutic of continuity is to show that these doctrines which appear on the surface to be opposed to traditional teaching are in fact just an outgrowth of traditional teaching. So in other words, this question of new question of ecumenism, he's admitting, is something that we have to show is simply a development of doctrine, not something that's integrally at a deep level and at the root of its principles opposed to the faith. And another priest, this time, uh, the time the district superior of the German district, Father Bernhard Gerstel, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, stated that the Fraternity of St. Peter, however, has accepted to study without prejudice the conciliar texts and has come to the conclusion that there is no breach with any previous magisterial statements. <laughs> Which is it's kind of amazing uh, in as so far as um, you have uh, people like Yves Congar speaking of the, uh, um, you know, several of the documents being a counter syllabus. You know, the, the famous document that Pius the Ninth published, you know, especially Gaudium Espes. But anyways, anyways, to, to continue with this quote from Flegersul, he says that however some texts are formulated in such a way that they can give way to misinterpretations. But in the meantime, Rome has already made a concord in clarifications which the Society of St. Pius X should now re also recognize. He gives that as a comment in April of 2017. So, in other words, there's nothing in Vatican II which is opposed to tradition. And, you know, if there are some minor and unfortunate expressions that could lead to some confusion, they've already been clarified. There's no problem, effectively. Well, and if that's the case, then um, those principles which they've accepted means they also have to accept effectively the principles as they're applied to marriage. Right. So maybe to explain this, uh, it's helpful to remember that marriage is the sacrament which symbolizes the union of Christ and his church. And indeed, that's really an, under an idea that's not simply new to the New Testament. Well, let's say even in the Old Testament, there was a comparison between, um, or let's say the covenant of Israel with God was compared to a marriage, and not a few times. And thus, Israel's dabbling with foreign gods was likened to adultery. And perhaps the most famous instance, sorry, of this, same as occurs in Ezekiel, in the 16th chapter, it's actually a fairly long chapter, and the whole of it is more or less comparing the relationship of Israel to uh, God to, as a marriage. And he talks about raising Israel up from the ground uh, as a, so to speak, a young girl, and as she matures, then marrying her, espousing himself to her. 
um, but she unfortunately is not particularly faithful. And so he says, or through the prophet Ezekiel, At every head of the way thou hast set up a sign of thy prostitution, and has made thy beauty to be abominable, and has, prost has prostituted thyself to everyone that has passed by, and has multiplied thy fornications. And what he's saying in particular, those who are passing by are various gods and idols. And he goes on a little bit further on. Wherein shall I cleanse thy heart, saith the Lord God? seeing thou dost all these works of a shameless prostitute. Because thou hast built thy brothel house at the head of every way, and thou hast made thy high place in every street, and was not as a harlot that by disdain enhanceth her price, but as an adulteress that bringing in strangers over her husband. Gifts are given to all harlots, but thou hast given hire to all thy lovers, and thou hast given them gifts to come to thee from every side to commit fornication with thee. And it has happened in thee, contrary to the custom of women in all in thy fornications. For in that thou givest rewards, and dost not take rewards, the contrary hath been done in thee. Thus saith the Lord God, because thy money hath been poured out, and thy shame discovered through thy fornications with thy lovers, and with the idols of thy abominations, by the blood of thy children whom thou gavest them. And he's talking about child sacrifice. Um, which was something that the Jews at the time fell into on occasion. Behold, I will gather together all thy lovers with whom thou hast taken pleasure, and all whom thou hast loved with all the whom thou hast hated, and I will gather them together against thee on every side, and will discover thy shame in their sight, and they shall see thee and all thy nakedness, and I will judge thee as adulteresses. And they that shed blood are judged, and I will give thy blood in fury and in jealousy. So in other words, by mixing with these false religions, false idols, she's Israel in this case has become an adulteress. She's been unfaithful to her spouse. But in Vatican II, it's no longer the people of God, the chosen people, the church, who dallies with other gods, with other spouses, but rather Christ himself, who let's say, as far to speak crudely, plays around. For the, as it said in one of the documents, which we'll comment on in a moment, for the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them as means of salvation. Fundamentally, we're dealing with a blasphemous proposition. Blasphemous. Because it's suggesting that God himself is not faithful to the church which he founded. Not merely in the sense that sometimes he may save a soul outside her visible boundaries in spite of the religion in which they find themselves, but rather because of that religion. Right. So to understand this a little bit more, I think it might be good to um, read a few passages from different documents of Vatican II. Um, it's a little lengthy, but I think it's, it's necessary to understand precisely where Amoris Laetitia comes from and why it's just an outgrowth of these ideas and not something completely out of the blue. So from the third paragraph of Unitatis Redintegratio, which is the document on ecumenism at Vatican II, we read that, moreover, some and even very many 
of the significant elements and endowments which together go to build up and give life to the church itself can exist outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church. For example, the written word of God, the life of grace, faith, hope, and charity, with the other interior gifts of the Holy Spirit, and visible elements too. Now I'm going to come back to that list because you find, in fact, a parallel in the Document on Amoris Laetitiae. To go back to Unitatis Red Integratio, all of these which come from Christ and lead back to Christ belong by right to the one Church of Christ. But note that the Church of Christ is not the same thing as the Catholic Church, because as you recall, the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. Two different things. The brethren divided from us also use many liturgical actions of the Christian religion, uh, for example, the sacraments. These most certainly can truly engender a life of grace in ways that vary according to the condition of each church or community. These liturgical actions must be regarded as capable of giving access to the community of salvation. It follows that the separated churches and communities as such, though we believe them to be deficient in some respects, have been by no means deprived of significance and importance in the mystery of salvation. For the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them as means of salvation, which derive their efficacy from the very fullness of grace and truth entrusted to the church. So again, the very, as they call them, churches, ecclesial communities, are as such made use of by Christ to save souls. And he does so through the riches of the church. So it's like a husband taking the wealth of his wife or something like that, the, some elements, some ornaments that uh, beautify his wife, and giving them to some other woman and saying, okay, now let's make children. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, like I said, really rather blasphemous at a deep level. <clears throat> Um, then it goes on and saying, it does go on to say, nevertheless, our separated brethren, which consider, whether considered as individuals or as communities and churches, are not blessed with that unity which Jesus Christ wished to bestow on all those who through him were born again into one body and with him quickened to newness of life. That unity which the Holy Scriptures and the ancient tradition of the church proclaims. For it is only through Christ's Catholic Church, which is the all-embracing means of salvation, that they can benefit fully from the means of salvation. But that's intriguing. While on the one hand, they say, the document states that the fullness of this means of salvation given by Christ is to be found um, in the church, Nevertheless, people can profit by them outside those means of salvation, outside the Catholic Church. So it's a good thing, but not strictly necessary. Now, what we read or saw in Unitatis Red Integratio is also, let's say, uh, shed light on by Lumen Gentium, which is on the Church. 
And here in paragraph 8, we read that this is the sole church of Christ, which is in the creed we profess to be one holy Catholic and apostolic, which our Savior, after his resurrection, entrusted to Peter's pastoral care, commissioning him and the other apostles to extend and rule it, and which he raised up for all ages as the pillar and mainstay of the truth. This church, constituted and organized as a society in the present world, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Nevertheless, many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside its visible confines. Since these are gifts belonging to the Church of Christ, they are forces impelling towards Catholic unity. Again, go back, let's say, to Pope Benedict XVI's statement that dialogue between the Catholic Church and these other religions, Protestants, whatever, allows each to profit by the riches the other brings. So, in other words, these elements of sanctification outside the visible balance of the Catholic Church are indeed positive goods and have something to add to the Catholic Church. Whereas traditionally, traditionally, the church has always taught, and rightfully so, that these different Protestant groups, all that they have of themselves are their errors. Anything they have of truth is already in the Catholic Church, belongs to the Catholic Church by right, and is efficacious in the Catholic Church. Whereas, again, traditionally speaking, whatever would be of itself, let's say, um, um, an element of sanctification, to use that language, for example, the sacrament of baptism present mm-hmm. in another church would be viewed as stolen property. Right. And not only that, but because it's stolen property, rendering the person who makes use of it more guilty. You know, um, so it's a profound shift. And again, that's going to affect, well, as we'll see, this question of marriage. So, to kind of conclude there, if this, therefore the Spirit of Christ does not refuse to use false religions, again, that is what they are, false religions, to save souls, how could God not also make use of less than perfect, quote-unquote, marital unions for the good purposes he has? And so, this, I think, is made more clear by a few documents, especially in and around uh, the Synod of the Family. So, there are three major documents produced uh, at that occasion. Firstly, what was known as a midterm report. So, the bishops gathered, they discussed various things, and then they published a working document. Okay, look, this is kind of the direction we're going. We want some feedback. Then, they, after that, they got back together, worked some more on the document, and then published what was called the Final Relatio, which is a recommendation to the Holy Father. Okay, these are the things we've talked about. This is our judgment on them. And then finally, the very uh, the document published by uh, Pope Francis himself, Amoris Laetitiae, which we've already quoted earlier. So in the midterm report, again, that working document, we read this. In considering the principle of gradualness in the divine salvific plan, one asks what possibilities are given to married couples who experience the failure of their marriage, or rather, how it is possible to offer them Christ's help through the ministry of the church. In this respect, a significant hermeneutic key comes from the teaching of Vatican Council II, 
which, while it affirms that although many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside its visible structure, these elements, as gifts belonging to the Church of Christ, are forces impelling towards Catholic unity. It's great. In this light, the value and consistency of natural marriage must first be emphasized, as though it had ever been questioned. Like a natural right. point, whatever. Anyways, some of whether the sac- some ask whether the sacramental fullness of marriage does not exclude the possibility of recognizing positive elements, even in the imperfect forms that may be found outside this nuptial situation, which are in any case ordered in relation to it. What imperfect forms? <laughs> Cohabitation, divorce, remarried. Very interesting. This doctrine of levels of communion, formulated by Vatican Council II, confirms the vision of a structured way of participating in the Mysterium Ecclesiae by baptized persons. You know, in other words, you can be fully a participant by being in, you know, the Catholic Church, but you can be in partial communion by being a Protestant, you know. Yeah. In the same perspective that we may consider inclusive, the Council opens up the horizon for appreciating the positive elements present in other religions. They reference Nostra Aetate, which we didn't quote, uh, but that's about the Jews and Muslims, as well as their cultures, despite their limits and insufficiencies. Indeed, looking at the human wisdom present in these, the Church learns how the family is universally considered as necessary and fruitful form of human cohabitation. It's like a social uh, studies document. (laughs) In this sense, the order of creation in which the Christian vision of the family is rooted unfolds historically in different cultural and geographic expressions, like polygamy. Right. Realizing the need, therefore, for spiritual discernments with regard with regard now to cohabitation, by which they mean shacking up, right. civil marriages, and divorced and remarried persons, it is the task of the church to rec- recognize those seeds of the word that have spread beyond its visible and sacramental boundaries. So in other words, all the positive good that are found in those imperfect unions, just like the church at Vatican II says that we can recognize elements of sanctification in these imperfect uh, forms of the Church of Christ. Following the expansive gaze of Christ, whose light illuminates every man, the Church turns respectfully to those who participate in her life in an incomplete and imperfect way, appreciating the positive values they contain rather than their limitations and shortcomings. Now, what those limitations, or I'm sorry, what those uh, positive values that they contain are can be seen if we look at a, a passage from, uh, sorry, from the final relatio. Yes. Okay. So this is taken from the 27th paragraph. And again, this is to illustrate what can be understood by positive values. In this regard, a new aspect of family ministry is requiring attention today. The reality of civil marriages between a man and a woman, traditional marriages, and taking into consideration the minor differences involved, even cohabitation. That's great. Here's the positive values. When a union reaches a particular stability, 
legally recognized, characterized by deep affection and responsibility for children, and showing an ability to overcome trials, these unions can offer occasions for guidance with an eye towards the eventual celebration of the sacrament of marriage. But already, okay, the idea is already they can be positively acknowledged. You know, that stability, that mutual respect and affection, that ability to overcome trials, all those things. We have to acknowledge that. Okay? And all that because of the doctrine laid down of the question of are varying degrees of participation in the Church of Christ. And that Christ does not refuse to make use of these things, those elements of sanctification, the Word of God, present in other churches, some of the sacraments, etc., faith, hope, and charity. So, as I hope is clear there, um, this idea of even to the extent of allowing communion for the divorced and remarried is based deeply on this idea of modern ecumenism Mm -hmm. and how you can have other religions still contribute to the sanctification and salvation of souls. Again, another quote from the final relatio is from paragraph 41. A new element in today's pastoral activity is a sensitivity to the positive aspects of civilly celebrated marriages and with obvious differences, cohabitation. While clearly presenting the Christian marriage, the church also needs to indicate the constructive elements in these situations which do not yet or no longer correspond to it. And all that would need to be added is that the Spirit of Christ can make use of those, those unions. Now, perhaps to bring this a little bit to a conclusion, There's various other things that could be read. But ultimately, what I think we've seen in these various um, episodes is that when we look at the sacrament of marriage, or marriage as such, we can understand that it's been undermined in multiple ways since the Second Vatican Council, both on the natural level, so we saw last time with the confusion, the ends of marriage, as well as on the sacramental level, with the attack effectively on the significance of the sacrament as a representation of the union of Christ and his church, um, with this introduction of mixed marriages. And indeed, even the unity and the indissolubility of marriage, and with the question of divorce and remarried, as well as even the holiness of marriage as such, is attacked based on the principles of modern ecumenism that are used to make that attack. You know, so you know, just as the Church of Christ subsists in the Roman Catholic Church, so marriage, we can say, subsists in the Catholic sacrament of marriage. Okay. And overall, what we can say is that there's an abandonment of a supernatural vision of marriage as an institution given to us by God to reflect, in fact, the deep and profound charity which he has for redeemed mankind. And not unsurprisingly, that's led to an utter collapse of marriage. You know, at the end of the last one, we quoted Cardinal Brown and his intervention at the council, worrying about, in that particular instance, the reversal of the intermarriage, saying that, look, there's two aspects of love. 
one of which is founded on friendship and is desiring the good of the other. And of course, the highest good of another is to extend them, to allow them to live again in their children, so to speak, as well as to give them the chance of going to God. And the other love is a self-love and selfish. And what we see with that crumbling of marriage is precise that his prediction was correct, that this attempt to uh, give the equal status, if not a greater status, to the secondary end of the mutual help of the spouses has done nothing else than really bring forth selfishness mm-hmm. in Catholic marriages. Now, when we started looking at marriage, we uh, gave a little anecdote of the life of St. Pius X with his mother. Um, when he was consecrated a bishop and he came home before taking his role in his diocese and showing her his Episcopal ring, which again signifies his marriage to his diocese. And her comment that, all right, that's wonderful, but if I didn't have my ring, that one wouldn't exist. And her simple remarks reveals the true and profound link that there is between marriage and holy orders and between Christ and his church. The unity and indissolubility of marriage is nothing more, ultimately in the eyes of God, than a reflection of the unity of the bond between Christ and his church, the head and the mystical body. And as a result, if we really and truly want to defend marriage as God wills it, as he sees it, then it's not sufficient to stay on the level of marriage itself to say we have to pass laws forbidding divorce or whatever. Or, you know, maybe by the time this podcast comes out, uh, the Supreme Court will have issued this decision uh, regarding um, that case pertaining to abortion. And maybe we'll overturn most of, if not all, of uh, Roe versus Wade. While that's good, it's not, it's not the solution. Mm-hmm. Because the ultimate solution to the profound malaise in our society and the deep, deep problems in marriage, of which abortion is only a symptom, is to reestablish, in fact, the rightful position between Christ and his church. And to, to be willing to defend the reality that there is only one bride of Christ. And that only she is the legitimate mother of his children. And so yeah. I think it's, it's a good uh, occasion for us to, to keep that combat in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Father, this has been uh, excellent. Um, it's helped me to understand my marriage better. Um, and it's been, it's, you know, disheartening to see that this is the way that, that marriage is seen now, even by the bride of Christ. But that's why we do what we do. That's why you're doing what you're doing, Father. Mm-hmm. The only thing I would say there is, I mean, it's not, I, th- I think we might want to be clear, it's not the bride of Christ herself, but men in positions of authority who have been, uh, let's say, misguided by principles that have their origin outside the church. And unfortunately, because they do have that position of authority, can give a cloak and make it appear that the bride of Christ is not being faithful, but she is. And again, the thing is, you know, our Lord did promise to St. Peter that the, the uh, gates of hell won't prevail against his, his bride. She will be faithful, even if 
Uh, at the moment, that doesn't appear to be the case. And in time, in circumstances known to him, um, those these truths will be proclaimed again in those positions of authority. And in the meantime, what we try to do, um, on the one hand, is certainly to defend these doctrines, but more importantly, to live them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, pri- it's primarily by our efforts of fidelity to these life-giving doctrines that souls will be drawn to them once more. Absolutely. Father, thank you so much for taking all the time to prepare this and, and to do these interviews. It's been very helpful to us. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. All right. Have a good night. Thank you.